Welcome to Tank Talks. It's me, your host, Matt Cohen, founder and managing partner of Ripple Ventures. On today's Tank Talk, we welcome our guest, Robbie Kazam, former general manager of Uber Canada. On today's talk, we ask Robbie the tough questions about growth tactics and strategies that worked and didn't work while being an international launcher at Uber in 2014 before moving on to becoming the general manager of Uber Canada. Robbie opens up about his thoughts on unnecessary spending and the downsides of growth at all costs. Robbie's experience in private equity and his humble beginnings at Uber are experiences all operators should be excited about. We left nothing unanswered in this talk. Now please welcome today's guest to the tank, Robbie Kazam. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Robbie. I would love to hear about when you originally joined Uber and what that first experience was like. When I joined Uber in 2014, I was looking for something different. I'd spent five years working in private equity investing, um, sitting behind a computer, creating financial models, and, and doing arguably interesting work, um, but uh, arguably not creating much in terms of tangible um, value, in terms of real life, uh, you know, real operating company experience. Um, I didn't get to manage anyone really. I didn't have any marketing experience or sales experience. Uh, I didn't have operations experience, and I just had a lot of things that I wanted to do. And so um, through uh, sort of serendipity and luck, in 2014, I started networking. Um, I wanted to get a, a job uh, at a startup. That, that was sort of the extent of, of what I thought I was going to be doing, um, and just learn how to build something new and join a great group of people that were working on something exciting. And um, I got lucky. I knew some people in the Toronto office at Uber, uh, some guys that I had uh, grown up with. Uh, they spoke really highly of the company, and uh, I started interviewing with them for uh, an international launcher role. I've been in Toronto. Uh, at that point, I was 28. I've been in Toronto for pretty much my whole life and was really craving getting away and doing something uncomfortable and different. And um, so I got really lucky. Uber uh, Uber ended up hiring me onto this international launch team. It was probably the uh, the furthest possible thing I could have done for my private equity job, living in a in a condo in downtown Toronto. It was, you know... Uh, you're going to join this international expansion team. You're going to be a launcher. You're going to be the first person in every new market that that Uber launches in. You're going to be sent all over around the world. You know, all expenses paid. Uh, but you're gonna you're gonna work your tail off seven days a week, um, virtually 24 hours a day, um, and you're gonna move every two months. Uh, so it's going to be really personally uncomfortable, um, but professionally, it's going to be an amazing uh, learning experience. And so I did that over the next 15 months bouncing around in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, launching different markets in Eastern Europe, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, and then I was fortunate enough, I hired a great team and Uber had a great product, which really sold itself. So I got to uh, ride the wave and uh, became later the general manager for Central and Eastern Europe, uh, where I got to lead a, a team of about 125 people across uh, 10 countries and 40 cities. Now, of course, that started with just me in, in an office um, in Prague, but over time it grew and, and obviously became something really special. And then in 2017, I came back, Uber sold its business in Eastern Europe. We were engaged in a really, really competitive uh, battle with a company called Yandex, which is uh, the search leader, the Google equivalent in Eastern Europe. And uh, we decided to uh, to sell our business to them in Eastern Europe. And so I was out of a job in late 2017 and decided to uh, come back to North America, be a little bit closer to my family and friends. And I uh, was lucky to, to become the GM for Uber Canada, the ride sharing business, which I did uh, for two years until this past summer uh, when I took a bunch of time off and I'm now working on a venture in the, uh, the home financing space. 
So that's a bit about my background. Uh, I guess we can just flip into the Q&A and I'll try to tie some of my experience and what I've learned into the uh, answers to the questions you've, you've given here. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert, but uh, happy to share my thoughts on, uh, on, on all things growth and feel free to chime in and ask any other questions that aren't, uh, that aren't listed here. That's awesome. Thanks, Rob. So let's just hop into it, everyone. Growth is the topic of your today. So let's go with the first question. What factors do you consider when assessing go-to-market strategies? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. And I look back at my experience at Uber. Uber expanded probably faster than any company in the world. Uh, when I joined Uber, we were in 60 cities in 2014. Within 12 months, we launched 150 cities. And 36 months later, we were in over 600 cities. Um, and so Uber went really, really quick. And I'll talk maybe later about some of the highs and lows and, and challenges associated with that type of growth. But the things that Uber really had right before they went and pursued a big go-to-market strategy were, you know, one, and, and number one, I think always is product market fit or product market readiness. Um, so if you're in a market and you have a product and it's adopted, it's got great MPS, uh, it has, you know, very few outages. It's getting really good feedback from your first few customers. You know, you could call that product market fit. If it's product market readiness, maybe your product isn't in the market yet, but you've benchmarked it against existing products. So you can look at things like um, what is the pricing of the, the substitutes or the competing products that exist in the market? You know, what types of features or value propositions might they have? Uh, maybe that's time to delivery or speed or efficiency or something like that. Um, and you can do a bit of basic benchmarking to see if if that product is likely, in theory at least, to be considered um, ready for for market adoption. Um, and I think that the tough part about figuring out when to launch and when to move is there's a tension, and I'm sure Matt has spent a lot of time with you guys about this topic, which is uh, on the one end of the spectrum, getting going as quickly as possible, spinning up an MVP, getting in the market, and getting feedback as quickly as possible, and, and iterating on that. Um, versus the risk of launching into a market, having a bunch of customers try your product, have it break or not wow them, and then have them decide that they don't want to use you again. And so there's always a really uh, fine line to, to, to work with. And I think, you know, you can cheat a little bit by finding, you know, ideally 20 to 30 people within your inner orbit, you know, two to three degrees away from you, friends, family, friends of friends, who you can say, hey, can you try this product? Can you give me a bit of feedback? If you're getting overwhelmingly positive feedback from that group, then I think you're, you're probably ready to go to market. In terms of the general idea, though, once your product is ready and you want to move into a market, um, you know, one of the most important things I think that you want to look at is, is how you're going to market that product. Um, who are the customers that you want to sell to? And um, is there existing industry distribution? Um, so, for example, I'm looking at a business right now in the home financing space. 75% of all mortgages in Canada uh, originated by mortgage brokers. Uh, they're not actually done directly through the banks. They're not done directly through websites. They're done through mortgage brokers. So if you were going to build a business that provides home financing solutions to the Canadian marketplace and Canadian consumers, you'd probably want to give a really hard look at your distribution strategy. And given the, the structure of that market, think about whether partnering with one of those distributors makes sense early on. If a partnership outright isn't possible, you may want to think about incentive structures or ways to incentivize and reward those partners for providing your product um, in, in return for a fee. So those are the types of things that I would look at. Um, I think the last one and, and is really important is to think about the footprint of your team. 
Um, particularly if you're in a really logistically heavy business, Uber is a great example. Uber's market expansion strategy always started with a local team. It started with a general manager, an operations manager, and a marketing manager. Um, and before those people were on the ground, it started with someone like me, a launcher. And uh, you know, my job was to go into that market and hire an unbelievable team, really bright, hardworking, uh, extremely motivated and inspiring group that was really bought into the mission and was going to work their tail off to make it work. And truthfully, more often than not, when I reflect on my time at Uber and you know the markets that had dynamics that were most challenging, uh, whether that was competition or regulatory or some other obstacle, the thing that I remember most about what helped us overcome that obstacle is not the tactic, it's the people. It's the people that came into work every day and said, well, we have this obstacle, but you know, we're going to come to work every day and we're going to bang our head against the wall until we figure out how to do it. Um, because ultimately, you know, great people who are working hard and kind of willing themselves through obstacles uh, is going uh, to be the driving force behind being successful and bringing your product to market. Yeah, that's right. It's really interesting. The part you mentioned about the go-to-market readiness versus uh, go-to-market strategy part. Um, I think for a lot of our companies, uh, we typically call them design partners uh, when they're trying to get their product into the hands of users, but not trying to oversell it or kind of fake it till they make it with those kind of customers first. They have an understanding that you are a partner. You're helping iterate the product to a, a state where the value proposition is self-explanatory. You know, I think with Uber, as you said earlier, it was product-led growth because the product sold itself. When you're in sort of the B2B and enterprise space, you're always trying to sell a future value of the product that the developers are going to be, you know, releasing maybe in three to six months. How do you think about managing that sort of go-to-market readiness versus full-on go-to-market strategy as maybe a CEO or a senior salesperson when you don't want to fall on your face, but you want to continue to stay ahead of the competition. Yeah. So you mean in more of like a B2B environment where yeah. you ultimately are going to have to build some really, yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I'll caveat my answer with, I don't know. Uh, so I'll give you my opinion on it. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think that ultimately comes down to relationships. So if I was building a business that relied really heavily on B2B relationships and adoption of my product from large organizations, one way or another, you're going to have to get close to the decision makers within those organizations or people in their orbit. And I think um, networking is obviously, you know, ground zero, whether you go to trade shows, whether you reach out through LinkedIn, through mutual contacts, you need to find a way to get time with those people to understand what's your problem, what product are you using today, and how can I make that better? And then you need to take that information back to your team or your whiteboard or whatever it is and really think hard. Do I have something that I can bring to that person and say, you know, hey, on a, on a free trial basis, on a freemium basis, whatever it might be, give two or three people a demo of this product. I'm convinced it's going to blow your mind. Uh, and I think you need to have a lot of conviction that it's going to do that because you're only going to get, you know, one or two cracks at having someone try a product uh, before they stop responding to you because uh, sales in big organizations takes a long time. And you know, I know firsthand at Uber, uh, you know, most people who worked at Uber in sort of public facing roles or in leadership roles got a lot of inbounds, a lot of LinkedIn requests. So you need to be really thoughtful about doing that. Appreciate that. Um, next question. When looking at my growth strategy, how should I assess my product readiness, customer acquisition and retention strategies and monetization? So kind of leading into that, am I ready for the go to market? These are some of the questions you ask. Yeah, I mean. 
I, I would look at them almost in that order. So I, I'd always start with product readiness. Um, I think customer acquisition is key. I, I think one of the big mistakes that, uh, you know, we talked already, I guess, I guess, about assessing product readiness, and maybe I'll leave that. But, you know, on customer acquisition, I think one of the things that we did at Uber, which was really valuable, was, uh, and, and I think Peter Thiel talks about it um, in from zero to one, uh, is uh, is doing things that don't scale. So, like, I think there's this idea that when you build a startup, you create a product, and then you run a bunch of Google and Facebook ads, and then people start using your ads, uh, your your product. Forget it. It's super expensive. It's the worst way to meet your customers. If you're building a product that's that magical that people are going to use it, you should have no problem yourself finding 10 to 20 people you know who are going to use it through your own you know, hard work and hustle. Uh, and Uber did that. You know, When we launched, when I launched, for example, in Eastern Europe, we weren't running any Facebook ads. We weren't running any Google. We would walk around and I would spend you know, the first few weeks literally hanging outside of airports, you know, outside of bars, outside of the kinds of places that taxi drivers hung out at. And I would go talk to them and I would say, you know, hey, I represent this American company. We have this app. This is the earnings opportunity for you. Here's why it's better than what you're doing. It's going to cost you nothing. Here's a way to download it. I'll put it on your phone. If you try it, I'll give you a hundred bucks in free credit. If you don't like it, you can delete it. And I used to do the same thing with riders. We would go hang out in front of bars and restaurants um, and talk to people and give them promo cards and say, uh, you know, here's a card. If you sign up, you get 20 bucks of free credit. And by the way, if you invite a friend, they'll get 20 bucks and you'll get 20 bucks. If you can convince people verbally, ideally, your first 100 customers to try your product, that's the best possible scenario because you're going to get real life feedback. They're going to be real life people um, and they're not going to come through a web channel that uh, that often carries a lot of economics that are not very favorable. So. I would really, once you feel good on the on the readiness side, I would try to find your first hundred customers manually, uh, whether that's you and your team together. And and I honestly, for the beginning, wouldn't f- focus too much on retention. I would focus on getting as many use cases established for those customers and try to get engagement up. So you know, again, for uh, for Uber, you know, the metric for us was. How many times does a rider use Uber every week? And globally, we had sort of a benchmark. Uh, you know, most people ride with Uber around two and a half to three times a week. If we were in a city and people were using it five times a week and we had a really good NPS and, and, you know, sort of informally and anecdotally, we were getting great feedback. Forget about retention. Don't focus on a bunch of other things. Just get your product into the hands of as many customers as possible and just keep taking their feedback. And, you know, as we grew and we went from 10 customers to 100 to 1,000, you know, you start to introduce more data-driven ways to collect information, you know, whether it's surveys or MPS forms and things like that. But stay close to the early adopters of your product. The first five to 10 people that you met that used your product, call them, take them out to lunch, get them to tell you about what they love about the product. And more importantly, get them to tell you about the things that they don't like about the product. Because those are things, and that's feedback that's really difficult to get online with customers that you don't know, unless you've built, you know, really... Uh, thoughtful uh, and, and productized feedback loops. So um, that's sort of how I think about that. I think retention comes later. You know, retention, and, and I'm sure a lot of other people have different thoughts about this. You know, candidly at Uber, we didn't start thinking about retention until retention um, was a meaningful source of growth. And at Uber, you know, we would sign up, let's say, a thousand people a week. Um, or a thousand people a month, and over time we would do analysis and learn. Okay, 
we've got 10,000 existing users. We sign up 1,000 uh, new users every week. So we've got 10% sort of gross um, user additions. And maybe we lose a, a couple hundred uh, users a week uh, that are churning or per month. And so over time, that became a more relevant growth channel. If we reduce the number of people that churn by X percent, we can, we can obviously grow faster. I think early on, it's probably wiser to focus on create, creating a great experience for the people that first use you and trying to attract as many new customers as possible uh, and come to retention when you've established a little bit of critical, um, critical mass. On the last, maybe the last one on monetization, it really depends on your product. So if you're building a, a productivity piece of software that is going to have, you know, um, you know, a fee on a monthly basis, you should introduce that from the start. I think introducing people to your product for free is risky. Over time, if those people use your product for six months or nine months, it's going to be really hard for you to introduce, you know, a, a fee. And you should try to do that as quickly as possible. Um, if you are, you know, maybe with some credits or some discounts, your first 30 days free or your first 60 days free, or maybe the first 100 users free because they're going to be your sort of evangelists. If you're building a social product, it's a lot harder because social products uh, and networks obviously have a very different business model. And, and so if your business model relies on being exceptionally large and generating ad revenue, then, you know, I think the sort of industry uh, um, feedback would be wait as long as possible, build the largest network as possible, get as many eyeballs as possible, and then introduce, you know, ads and generate ad revenue. But if you have a product that you're going to charge on every transaction and you're going to charge on a monthly basis, then then I would recommend charging as soon as that is, um, as soon as you can as possible. If people aren't willing to pay for it early on, uh, they're likely not willing to pay for it later on. Yeah, that's really interesting. We asked a question to all the founders we meet, depending on what market they're selling to, whether it's B2C, you know, mid-market, enterprise, SMB, how many customers have you interviewed about the value proposition you're trying to provide before even going to talk about pricing or even go to market strategies? And a lot of times it's shocking how little customer due diligence they've actually done. You know, if it's a SMB, that's yeah. like maybe 10 or 15, mid-market, 25 enterprise, they maybe talk to five enterprise customers and there's no consistency in the questions that they ask. So having a data-driven approach where you can actually capture consistent data on the answers and feedback and then scaling as much as you can those, those conversations to as many people before you go to market, it really does save you a lot of time from catching up. I mean, think about it. If you're going to spend every waking hour, hour building a company, wouldn't you want to yeah. have as many conversations as possible with potential customers before you actually have to sell them? And so I think that's a, an easy question to ask yourself is how many customers have we talked to before we even get into the selling part of the problem? Yeah, so. totally. And, and there's some basic frameworks, you know, that you can use to to outline sort of value propositions. So, you know, I tend to think in rows and columns and Excel, but, you know, you, you create sort of, you know, what's my target customer and then rank the existing products, you know, price speed, quality, you know, quality of customer support, come up with a couple standard attributes that you can use and then ask all your clients or all the people, you know, in the industry or through your own experience, how you'd rank uh, and, and, you know, establish a value proposition rank for each one of those things for the existing products and then do yours. And if yours isn't, you know, at least 50% better, then, then maybe consider working harder before you bring it to market. That's great. Thank you. How do you minimize unnecessary spending and what happens when you can't A-B test growth channels? Great question to ask right now in this time environment. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, 
it look it changes through through cycles i think the number one thing is by building a culture and by hiring people and bringing on a team that thinks like owners you know uber from the start always had a cultural value which is be an owner not a renter and the idea was and you know we came up with various analogies but if you were the last person in a in an office and you were walking out and the lights were on would you actually go through the trouble of turning off the lights in the office you know if you've been in a 50 person office turning off the lights isn't actually as straightforward in a commercial space as you might think um but that's the kind of culture you want to create where even when people don't have to because it's you know not necessarily their money it's not their startup they do do those things because they believe it's their startup and everyone has this sort of shared accountability to spend the company's resources in a way that's going to be effective and thoughtful and you know we used to ask people you know occasionally um you know when when things started getting out of hand at Uber you know for example people are buying expensive laptops that we didn't need it or spending money on things that we didn't think are justified um ask someone the question would you you know if if i asked you in front of the entire company to justify that spend would would you be able to do it and i think that's a really good test because you know when you raise a lot of money and you've got a lot of capital and uh and and you feel like you, you know it's it's not necessarily yours you're spending someone else's time it gets awfully easy to spend money you don't have so i think it starts at at company culture and it starts at recruiting and it certainly starts with you and the example you set you know on the launch team uh i lived for about 22 24 months in airbnbs uh, i didn't spend a ton of money i didn't stay in a lot of hotels i flew economy um i ate you know not that i want to recommend eating bad food but you know i ate pretty cheap every day and so the people that i hired looked at my example and said you know rob's working 14 hours a day he's not going out for steak dinners on the company's dime he's not flying you know uh business so how would i even go about doing that he's the guy that hired me he's the person who sort of my inspiration for you know what i should be and how i should act within the company so don't ever don't underestimate you know leadership and how they act and 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 culture um i think one of the things that becomes really useful as you have more of a track record and you've been running your business for a longer period of time you've maybe got some budgeting processes is a concept called a zero based budgeting and it's this idea that you know most companies what they do is every year they say you know okay let's say we did 10 million dollars in revenue and we spent you know a million dollars on marketing last year well then next year uh we're going to spend at least a million dollars on marketing so we take last year's budget and we add some amount to it or maybe we we sort of maintain the proportion relative to revenue so if you spend a million dollars on marketing and did 10 10 million of revenue you spend 10% on marketing next year if you do 20 million on mar- in revenue you'll uh you'll spend double that so zero based budgeting basically says at the beginning of the year you start from zero every single line item in the company whether that's office expenses computers sales marketing starts from zero and your business leaders or your founders or whoever it is start with the premise of let's justify what we think we should spend this year and start from zero and if it means that it's less money than last year then fine and if it means it's more money than last year and we've got good impetus to do it um then do it but never 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 just repeat last year's budget because it becomes really easy to uh to fall into that that sort of a habit in terms of you know ab testing growth channels if if you can't do it uh then don't do it and don't sweat it uber didn't ab de- test channels for a really long time i think i probably spent um 18 to 24 months running our markets we were so focused on new user acquisition so focused on just keeping up with the day's work and the week's work 
that we weren't super analytical doing experiments between different growth channels. And that sophistication came later when we had more time, when we had um, better resources uh, and data analysis resources to, to track that type of information. Um, you know, I think there's a big difference between running really big experiments uh, that cost a lot of money and maybe doing some gut checks. So once a quarter or every six months, go through an exercise of refreshing what your user acquisition costs are. Estimate, you know, what you think it costs on a fully burdened basis. For example, if you run radio ads, you know, how much did you spend on radio ads? How many new users signed up through radio? Try to get a sense for what your user acquisition cost is. Um, and look at that and look at that relative to the other channels you have. For example, online uh, marketing, mobile marketing, social marketing, and do it every six months. And just make sure you do some gut checks to, uh, to ensure you're not way off the rails. I don't think you need to run these tests every week or every month. Uh, certainly every couple of months, once a quarter, seems like a good gut check if you don't have the time or the money to be doing it that often. What was some of the most surprising growth channels that you did not think would be so successful uh, before you actually look back at the data when you were at Uber? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I spent so much time trying things that I, you know, it was really frustrating. Like it was poking around in the dark. Things that I thought would work massively didn't work and things that shouldn't have worked did. Uh, things that really worked early on um, were one, guaranteed incentives for suppliers. So if you run a marketplace, um, your marketplace is, is either sort of a demand-led marketplace or a supply-led. And that means that you need one side of the marketplace to be there reliably before the other side will engage. For Uber, we had to have drivers. Before we could launch, no one was going to request an Uber and we weren't going to let them if there was no drivers online. So how do we get the drivers online? You know, We went around to the first 10 drivers, 20 drivers, 50 drivers in every city and basically said, look, you earn, let's say, 20 euros an hour. I'll sign you up on Uber. If you're on the app for five hours a day for the next seven days, I'll guarantee you, you 20, 20 euros an hour. Whether you get a request or not, I'll guarantee you that. And at the end of every week, I'll query it. If I saw you were online and you were available, I'll make the payment if you didn't get the trips. And if you got the trips, then, then you should earn enough that you don't need that incentive. That was massively helpful for getting our first um, couple of uh, couple of drivers on board and ultimately what allowed us to really build uh, supply scale really quickly. Um, some things that, that didn't work really well, paid ads. Paid ads performed terribly. I, to this day, think paid marketing is... Um, the lowest value marketing that you'll probably do. It has the highest cost associated with it, the most leakage, the lowest conversion rate. For Uber, if if I went and marketed through organic means, through radio ads, through word of mouth, through referrals, three or four out of every 10 signups actually became an Uber driver or an Uber rider, if not more. When we ran paid ads, online ads, maybe one out of a hundred people who signed up actually converted. So it's a really lower quality um, funnel. And, and I think businesses that are built that are focused solely on um, paid marketing end up spending a ton of money acquiring their users um, and, and can obviously, obviously end up in a really tough situation when it comes to uh, maintaining that growth trajectory when they don't have the money to, uh, to deploy into those channels. Gotcha. So anyone who's basically lending on paid ads data is not a good business that you'd invest in. I mean, look, it, it, my, I'm not a marketing expert. What I always learned about marketing is that it's got to be part of a broader comprehensive strategy. So as an example, if you're going to run 
you want to do a, let's say for Uber for three months, we did supply sprints. So in Prague, for example, we, it was impossible to find drivers. Drivers just wouldn't sign up with Uber. So we were always supply constrained. So we decided, all right, you know, we know people are skeptical, skeptical about driving with Uber for X, Y, and Z reasons. We're going to run some billboards. We're going to run some radio ads where we're not just going to market the product um, to sign up, but we're going to talk about why Uber is good. We're going to talk about the benefits. We're going to actually build on the kind of awareness and consideration and get people to think about Uber in a favorable way. At the same time, we're then going to run Facebook ads. So you're going to come home. You maybe heard us on the radio. You saw a billboard. Then you came home and you saw for the third or fourth time an opportunity to click the link to sign up with Uber. That was always much more successful than just running uh, online ads independently and seeing if they would convert. So it's got to be part of a broader life cycle of a marketing campaign, I think. Awesome. Uh, I guess any tips on diversifying your product line to help grow revenue as a startup? Uh, it's tough. Like, um, I, I, I looked at this question for a while and was thinking about what to say. I, I think that it's hard because if you're doing a good job early on, you're not thinking about diversifying your product line. In fact, you're actively thinking about things you can stop doing, complexity you don't need to add, features you shouldn't build because you just want to focus on executing what you need to do this week and just continuing to deliver to customers. Um, if you have to grow revenue and you need to do it quickly, I think I would start with your customers. Um, I know that's sort of an easy answer, but go to your customers and take them out for dinner, take them out for lunch and ask them, you know, what's going on in your business? What's challenged right now, for example, because of COVID that we could be providing you? What's a problem you'd pay $100 or $1,000 to get solved and figure out how to do it? Every business right now is going through this challenge of needing to pivot. You know, we're all reading about restaurants that their business has been decimated. They know that, you know, they have brand recognition, they have relationships with customers and they have physical location. You know, what are they doing? They're pivoting to grocery pickup. They're using their physical locations to their advantage by being able to store groceries close to their customers. So um, I think you need to talk to your customers. And, you know, I, I'm a believer that if you have enough conversations about what they need, you'll likely stumble upon um, something that, that, that you can provide them. You know, the last is think about what you do today um, that you don't charge for and think about what you could charge for. So, you know, at Uber, we, uh, we were really idealistic about providing as much economic value to customers and drivers uh, at the beginning. We didn't charge for a lot of things. We used to give drivers free phones. We used to give them free data packages. We used to give them a whole host of things. Uh, and over time, we learned we needed to charge for some of these things. So think about in your existing business, are there things that you feel you can charge your customers for that are defensible, that they'll have some willingness to pay um, and, and try to do some experiments and see if you can get them to pay for them? Yeah, I think a lot of businesses are going through this uh, kind of diversity conversation. Like, is it a bridge to a pivot, though? Is it a something you should have done before that you just didn't want to try? If you're a gym that's now going digital, are you diversifying or are you actually pivoting to a digital platform that you could have probably done pre-COVID? You just didn't think you needed it because the ROI wasn't there for you. So make sure you calculate the ROI before you dive in with both feet to a diversifying strategy. I think as a startup, it is okay to try out a different bunch of scenarios. But back to what maybe Robbie was saying is that if you had enough of those customer conversations, you'll probably land on a place that you should have been focusing on you know, pre-COVID. So you don't have to diversify. You already have the data on what value you can offer there. Yeah. Um, what are some implications of expanding into other countries, additional resources, legal re regulations, et cetera, that you have tips on? 
Yeah, this is a great question. I, I could spend a lot of time talking about it. I think that, you know, um, you know, there's sort of two elements. There's the implications of expanding and deciding to expand. I, I think maybe to start with, the, you know, with the latter, when you decide that you're going to expand to a market and you feel the market is ready, your product is going to be compelling, commit 100% to expanding and, and have the wherewithal and the ambition to commit the resources you need to make that market work. At Uber, uh, Uber was extremely aggressive uh, about expansion and they were aggressive in one specific way, which is they empowered their local team to make decisions. And I think most of the companies that I talk to today, it's a founder, a CEO, they want to expand to a new market. You know, they, they think about hiring someone to be in charge of, of that market, but they want to stay involved. And when I talk to them, it sounds like the whole company is talking about what they need to do to make that market successful. And, you know, Uber didn't really do that. Uber dropped me in a market and said, good luck, launch Prog. Uh, we have an engineering team that can add Prog to the product list and make the product work, but regulations, marketing, hiring, that's your problem. And you can engage with HQ and you can ask for advice, but the night before launch, there's only one person that the company is looking at uh, or that the executives are looking at and are gonna look at a month later and a year later if that market worked. And that's the launcher or the general manager. And so I would try as much as you can to be decentralized early on, empower people who are in charge of expansion and give them the, the sort of personal risk and the personal personal reward associated with successfully executing. Because if you do, they'll run through walls and they'll be that much more creative and they're going to figure out things that you just don't have the time to do if you're sitting in you know, another country or another city. Um, in terms of implications, you know, moving to another market will raise necessarily questions around resourcing. So do we have the product resources, the marketing resources, the legal resources to support that market? It's going to raise questions about you know, regulatory compliance and legal compliance. Um, but more than anything, it's going to continue to lead back to this debate when you have multiple markets of which markets should we prioritize? And if your leaders or you are doing a good job, you do your pre-homework and you commit to a market and then you're all in. You know, the hardest thing is if you launch a market and it's not going great and then you have everyone in the company going, I don't know why we launched there. The market's not that big. You know, now you have that team asking for things in HQ and people are sort of saying, well, you know, should we really work on this? Is that really a good use of time? Uh, that's really tough, for example, in Canada, if your business is operating in Canada and then you launch, let's say, uh, or in Toronto and you launch, let's say, in Montreal. Montreal is going to have tons of language requirements. So make sure there's leadership conviction. Make sure, ideally, that your team is committed, whether it's financially uh, with headcount or some sort of resources. What's this market going to get for the next six months? And write it down and agree on it. And uh, and and don't be surprised, you know, three months later when the people working on that launch that you've tasked with making it successful keep coming back and asking for resources. Be really thoughtful about how you're going to help them and how you're going to how you're going to support that market. Obviously, at a larger scale, this becomes a lot more complicated. At Uber, um, I can admit, while we did a great job of expanding. Uh, our, our HQ functions didn't do a great job keeping up. You know, I was at one point in, um, in Eastern Europe, uh, we were in, you know, I was overseeing like eight or nine cities with a team below me. We had no legal support. We had no public affairs support. We had no PR support. We were basically getting shut down in every single market I was operating in. We had drivers getting arrested. We had our offices getting raided. 
and no one could help me. Uh, and, and it sucked. And, uh, we ended up having bad outcomes because of it. We didn't, we weren't as thoughtful about expansion. We weren't as thoughtful about engaging with the government because there just wasn't enough time to do it. Uh, if I could go back, I would have thought about how we could have built better, better sort of alignment with the leaders of those functions to say, look, you know, the business wants to expand to these markets on this timeline. Can you grow your team fast enough? Or do you feel that your existing team can support this? If not, what are we going to do? And does that mean we should revisit expansion or does that mean we should get creative and someone like myself um, should do it on their own? So those are kind of my thoughts on, on expansion and, and balancing uh, the resourcing required for it. That's great. I've always heard about this Uber launch playbook that people have talked about for years. And I, I wanted to actually ask you for a long time, was there actually a playbook for launching new cities or states or countries? Or is this some type of like mythical thing that came down from HQ and then the rest was up to you to fill in the blanks? Because a lot of startups go from Canada to the US to international markets. And I've actually never really seen this Uber launch playbook, but I would love to know if there was one that exists and if we can get a hand on it. Yeah, no, there definitely is. I have it. It's, it's, you know, it's funny. People ask me all the time and it's not, you know, no playbook is the silver bullet. The, the, the silver bullet and the magic is getting your company and your team built into the idea of creating a playbook and improving it. So when I joined Uber, there was 25 people on the launch team. There was this playbook and truthfully, the playbook wasn't, this is, you know, here's how to perfectly do something. It was like build supply, find your first hundred drivers. Here's a couple things that have worked, you know, uh, walk around in front of the airport and, and, you know, guarantee drivers 20 bucks an hour, uh, you know, go to a limo company and guarantee them a thousand dollars. If they give you 10 drivers for the first day, you know, there was no real secret sauce in there. That was, uh, that incredible, but it was the commitment that when I got that playbook, I went into Eastern Europe with it. I started working on it. And every week the launchers that you know, we're around the world, we'd all get together and we would share what was called sort of battle strategy. So what's not going well in the launch? Oh, wow. In, in Prague, I'm having a really hard time onboarding supply. Well, we have someone in Brazil that's had that same issue six months ago, and now he's on the call talking about what worked. Um, and now we're taking notes about best, about best practices. So the playbook was a living, breathing document on, I believe it was on basecamp.com and we updated it. It was, it was like a live real-time document. And so I'd go into a launch, I'd start doing things. And then I'd realize like, ah, there's no wrong order or we shouldn't do this. And then I would update it. And that was the magic, you know, none of us really remembered the actual tactics themselves. Um, there were some okay ones in there, but you know, for the most part, it was just this idea of continuous improvement and, uh, and writing things down. Because if you get one employee to launch successfully, and then you want to launch eight more times, simultaneously, you now need eight people to do the same thing. And uh, it would be a heck of a lot easier if that first employee wrote it down, had to call all those people and then sent them out into the wild. Um, then those people just trying to, you know, through trial and error, figure it out on their own. And that's what Uber did. And the woman who created that deserves a lot of credit. Her name's Austin Geit. She joined Uber when she was uh, 21 as an intern. She was the fifth employee there. And uh, she's, she's done really well and is a great inspiration to everyone on the launch team. That's really cool. I like that battle playbook. It sounds more uh, perfect for the yeah. battles you went through. So it wasn't a sports betting almanac, just to be clear. No, no. If you looked at the tactics in there, <laughs> you're probably doing them already. All right. Well, I guess this would kind of uh, be in the launch playbook as well. How do you deal with aggressive competitors? Uber versus Lyft. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time. The last three years that I had at Uber were really spent a lot on this, both in Eastern Europe with Yandex. And then when I came back to Canada, a big, a big area of my focus was competition with the lift. And, uh, 
Um, it's hard. I, I think that one, you know, it's important to look at competition as a good thing because competition will force you to be a better company. It'll force you to add more value to your customers and, and it'll make you sharper and act with more urgency. One of the um, two things that I'd say that I took away from it were, you know, one, financial incentives are a lever, uh, but not the only lever. And Uber relied too heavily on financial incentives and so to have all of the ride sharing and food delivery apps, and they're seeing the consequences of that. So, you know, if you sell a product for $5, uh, but you pay a user $4 to use it, so therefore you're selling it for a dollar, and you build a great business with tons of users giving away 80% of your theoretical revenue, um, there will be a day of reckoning. Uh, that day may take five years, it may take 10 years, but you will one day have to deal with the consequences of that. And you know, they're twofold. There's the financial commitment and all of the resources that that consumes as you get bigger. Um, but the bigger one is how you get out of that. Because if you've trained your users and your customers to always associate you and your brand and your product with being discounted, it's awfully hard to take them away in the future. So use financial incentives. Uber certainly did. I, I uh, certainly oversaw my share of really, really big incentive budgets. Um, it was sort of seen as a necessary evil to some extent, uh, but be really thoughtful about you know how you're going to do that. Establish guardrails. Try to wean customers off of that as quickly as you can, um, and know that ultimately you need to win on product and and not win on subsidies. The second thing I'd leave you with, maybe more that's a little more optimistic and, and tangible that you can take away is is to do customer segmentation sooner. Um, when, when we started at Uber, or at least when I did, you know, we always looked at users as just, a, you know, they were all equal. So we would do 10,000 trips a week, and then we do 100,000 trips a week, and then eventually we got to millions of trips a week. And, you know, we always looked at them as sort of apples to apples, like a city that does, uh, you know, 75,000 trips a week. You know, let's say they have 30,000 users. You know, we run the same tactics, the same playbook, the same partnerships. And what you need to realize once you start facing competition is that those 30,000 users are made, of, made up of much smaller collections of users. Some of them are um, you know, product evangelists. They're, they use the product all the time. They're power users, and maybe they pay for it, and they use it in their business. There's other users that are using it more casually on a more leisurely basis. You know, For Uber, we had a business segment. These are people that are charging Uber their credit card, their corporate company credit card. They're using Uber 10 times a week. Their willingness to pay is very high. Certain features are of great value to them. Others aren't. Then we had people, frankly, that were getting drunk on the weekend. You know, young people who were using Uber as a as a means to getting around on the weekend. The sooner you break your customers down into those different segments and think about how can we serve those customers, what are the um, specific promotions we can do with them, the specific products we can push with them, the better. Because your 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 competitors are going to do that, and that's ultimately what happened with Uber. We we tried to look at all of our customers as one. And then typically what would happen is we'd have four uh, you know, competitors. One would be hyper-focused on the business segment and they just do a way better job. They had central billing and invoicing and all these administrative features that um, people like myself wouldn't care about on the weekend. And then we had other, other service providers that were doing a great job with leisure travelers or creating services that made the service really cheap or allowed you to share a ride with friends. And so the sooner you can have your company think about those customer segments differently, create strategies differently, look at your market share differently, um, I think you'll, you'll be better off and you'll think about more nuanced um, competitive strategies.
Did you, do you ever think Uber will get away from those financial incentives and did you want them to move away from it earlier? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we did, we did. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, especially in Canada, we did a lot of, you know, quantitative analysis and, and like statistical analysis to figure out, you know, where we should spend subsidies, where a dollar invested here would generate, you know, greater than a dollar return. Um, we, I hated subsidies. I hated them. They were a huge pain in the ass. Uh, every market that I oversaw that introduced them, I knew one day I'm going to have to figure out how we get rid of them. Um, so yeah, we obviously did want to get rid of them. I'm confident they will go away. I think what's happening right now with COVID is a, is a, is a great, you know, sort of lever for discipline. You see all these companies now pulling back on subsidies, uh, starting to discount less, being more restrained. And that helps because there's a lot of game theory and, and incentives. So if Matt and I are competing for the same market, I might be sitting there going, you know, fuck, Matt's killing me. He's spending a fortune. I, you know, I don't want to do this, but if he's doing this, then I have to. And he could be sitting there going, man, Rob's killing me. He just raised another $5 million pouring it into the market. So we both don't want to do it, but we have to do it because we both assume the other one's doing it. So when I know Matt's not doing it because the market has corrected, because financing is harder, because we're both public companies and we have very different expectations from the market, it's a lot easier for us to both spend less and actually do better. Gotcha. It's like a race to the bottom until it's not. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, we kind of addressed this a little bit, but any tips on kickstarting some new marketplaces? Uh, tactics that you would use to boot uh, each side of the marketplace. It depends which supplier demand side you're focused on, but thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talked about a bunch already about the financial incentives, so maybe I'll leave them there and, and I think be careful with them. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uber did some things that they were pretty quirky. I don't know that people remember them anymore, but they were really successful uh, in building traction uh, and they got a lot of press attention. So, you know, the two that stick out to me most and that people that worked at Uber will, will remember fondly for hating uh, were, were sort of ice cream on demand and kittens on demand. And, you know, if you don't know what those were, you know, it was basically like one day a year, Uber would just deliver ice cream to anyone in the city basically for free. Um, and it was a shit show. You know, the press would write about it. People went absolutely, for some reason, people go absolutely nuts about free ice cream or getting a kitten to play with them for five minutes. And um, it was a, total PR ploy uh, in hindsight, you know, there's no business case behind it. In fact, it cost a huge amount of money. It was a huge uh, draw on resources. Uh, our marketing managers hated it. it. It never went smoothly, but it got tons of press. And so we got ridden up in every city, got tons of, um, tons of coverage. It ended up leading to a ton of organic signups. So, you know, don't underestimate the, uh, the, the power of really novel uh, things that can get you in, in the media I see a lot of startups doing a great job of doing that now. Um, some of the startups I'm advising now are pivoting and they're helping deliver food with their team. They're using their technology to help get resources to, to frontline responders and they're getting written up about it. So not to say that you want to do those things solely for the press, but um, if you can get a journalist or a tech blogger to write about your service, it, it's going to really help you know build an online audience. Yeah, I remember the puppy on demand. That was a disaster. Waiting for that puppy to come to your door for five minutes. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, looking back, are there some any small tactical moves in terms of growth that had larger impacts than expected? What were they? Would you do it again? Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked a bit about them. None of them are that glamorous or, or that surprising. But, you know, the things that, that worked for us were, 
you know, radio ads, sign up bonuses, hourly guarantees. If you're running a supply, in particular, a labor sort of uh, supply marketplace, um, those worked really well. Uh, I talked a bit about the on-demand stunts and things like that. You know, I, I view those as favorable. I think all of those, um, all of those, you know, were a piece of the puzzle, and you need to try different things and see what works. Um, in terms of what I would do again, I would be more restrained with financial incentives, and I'd pull them sooner. So, you know, for the first 90 days when we launch markets, um, you know, just as an example, we would say. You know, we need a driver to do X number of trips a week to make enough money for this to be worthwhile. As long as they're not doing that, we'll fill the gaps. So let's say they we, we think drivers need to make $500 a week to be to view Uber as a true alternative to a day-to-day job, whatever that dollar might be, right? Um, if they made $300, we'd give them $200. What happened is as we got more efficient and people used Uber more often and drivers did more trips and we had more efficiency, drivers started to creep up and get to that $500 level. But rather than pull our incentives, which we should have, um, and which would have been consistent with those drivers because we told them, hey, we're going to try to get you to your kind of these level of earnings and then we're going to stop incentivizing you because you won't need them. A lot of us got greedy and we decided, well, if we keep paying incentives, we can grow even faster. And so we kept those incentives for years. And then it became impossible to pull them to the point that we had drivers that would only drive if we paid them huge amounts of incentives that never made sense. We ended up pulling them. We ended up losing those drivers permanently, and and it was a huge pain in the butt. So, um, if you're going to use subsidies, again, have a mental sort of framework for why you're going to use them, um, what gap they're going to fill in your marketplace, and and have a have a time limit on them. And when you reach that point, you know, um, pull them and, and stop doing it, and and be decisive about it. Mm-hmm. One thing I, we we try to do with our companies is get them to explain the tangible ROI to their customers in a very simple fashion. So kind of go through the back of the envelope math with them to say, Hey, you're spending this much time on it. So it's either a money creator or money saver tool that you're trying to obviously sell them. If you can show them how they can save, you know, 65% based on the actual numbers that they are giving you, um, you know, there's actually ROI calculators that you can uh, input into your, um, uh, your agreements with customers that they can click on and play around with to say, if I spend this many hours on or so on, how much money can I save or make? Uh, those also I, I seem to work quite well, at least for our B2B SaaS companies. Um, so uh, the assumption is that growth at all costs is based on availability of capital. Does it ever get to a point where having too much capital uh, can be detrimental in that you end up developing an unrealistic growth strategy, i.e. soft bank money? Yeah, 100%. I, I'm so glad someone asked this question. This this drove me absolutely nuts at Uber. And, it, and um, you know, even while I was there and a part of it, I was always wondering, like, where's this going? You know, like, it, you know, again, I use the analogy. If, if you open up a, a burger stand next to McDonald's and McDonald's sells burgers for five bucks and you sell them for a dollar and you build a huge business and everyone's buying burgers from you, um, do you have a business? what where's the end game there now in some businesses there's there there is rationale behind it so you know if you're uh, for example in a capital uh, very capital intensive business with equipment and you buy a piece of equipment and if you you know use that piece of equipment to produce 100 widgets you have very high cost but if you produce 100,000 widgets you know your variable costs come down and now it's profitable there's some logic in that ride sharing has some elements of that but the the, the reality is the the bulk of, of Uber's costs and the bulk of marketplace costs are variable. So, 
every time a driver picks you up or someone comes to deliver food, there's a fixed amount of money they need to make. And if we deliver 100 items or 200 items, it's not really going to change that calculus. Someone's time is worth something. And um, I think Uber and a lot of companies uh, over the last 10 years have, have taken this way too far and got to this point where they thought, you know, some markets and some products and some growth strategies that aren't um, that aren't profitable are, are worth pursuing. And the reality is, as I said, is you, you'll deal with it one way or another. There's no escaping it. So at Uber, we decided to um, launch a lot of markets. You know, Eastern Europe is candidly a great example. Eastern Europe had really low um, average fare values to the point that the market was never going to be that big for us. We invested a bunch of time and resources there. Uh, it made sense. I'm super proud of it. But while we were there, we strayed into some markets that were never going to make sense, where we had, you know, 80 cent average fares or dollar average fares. And we sort of knew that, you know, one day this is going to be really tough to unwind and this doesn't really make a lot of sense. But we did it anyways, because we were really caught up in the moment and we had competitors there and, and we really wanted to win. And guess what? Uber's unwinding those markets now. So my lesson and, and what I leave with you is. Um, be really thoughtful about this. You should be able to do really basic back of the napkin math that says, what am I selling my product for and, and can we make money? And it's okay to be unprofitable for a period of time, you know, while you're reaching some level of scale, you know, for example, not, not, you know, venture businesses aren't going to cover their OPEX. So they're not going to cover all of their employee salaries to start, but you should know the number, you know, if I sell 200 widgets and I have five employees, I'm going to lose, let's say $500,000 a year. Once we sell a hundred or once we sell a thousand, we can cover our costs. We can make a profit. Great. Do that. And when you get to that level, um, make a profit. Don't just hire and, and respend all of that money that you've got because, you know, one day capital won't be as easy to access and, and you're going to have to make some really tough decisions. And that's, that's kind of unfortunately what, what, what everyone's seeing right now. Do you think that <clears throat> there becomes a time when Uber is able to take out a large chunk of that variable cost with maybe autonomous driving or something, and then the customer base they have is still on the platform, but the, the big chunk of cost that goes toward drivers is essentially removed? I think so, but I yeah, but I think you know the, the media sensationalizes autonomous vehicles. I think in a way that the same way that um, the best analogy is you know we're all learning this pandemic isn't going to just like end. Like we're not going back to pre March twelfth when, when the when Ford loosens the uh, the regulations in Ontario, we're not all going to go back to normal. There's going to be a really long step of getting back to normal, and you know pre March twelfth may not happen for two years for all we know. And I, I think that that's ultimately the way that you need to think about um, you know these situations is to is to, to is, there's going to be a gradual change. Got it. Um, I guess now, you know, getting towards the end of it in the current state we are in, how do I manage growth amidst changing priorities during COVID? Yeah, this is really tough. And I feel for people that are running a business right now, you know, I'm trying to start a business, but we're not really selling anything yet. So uh, we don't have any existing decisions we've made in the past or commitments that we have to right size, which is really tough. I don't have any great answers for you, to be honest. I would think um, hard with your advisors and your investors. What's the new goal? You know, you can justify any strategy based on the goal. If your goal for the next six months is to survive, then survive. Just focus not on growth, but preserving cash, retaining the talent you can, and just biding time. And, you know, if you need absolutely to prove product market in the next six months, because if you don't, you're going to run out of money um, and you need to pivot and you need to create a new product, 
then do that. I, I would throw out whatever goals and whatever business plan you had pre-COVID and come back to the drawing board and say, what do I need to do in the next 60, 90 days to keep my business afloat and, and to continue working on that? So I just say all bets are off. Think about what you what you can sell and what you can do that's going to be valuable for your customers um, and go do it. And don't be afraid to make big, tough decisions. I think in these moments, it's probably better to make bold, tough, negative decisions. For example, letting people go, closing markets, um, temporarily putting off plans than it is to continue doing those things for three more months and then deciding later that you have to do them anyways. That That's almost never the right answer. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Throw out your, your 2020 playbook because it definitely isn't going to come true anymore. But one thing we've said is first off, determine what kind of COVID impact you have as a company. Are you COVID resistant? Are you COVID affected? Or are you COVID mission critical? If you're COVID yeah. mission critical, like you know telemedicine, it's growth at all costs now. This is your time. But if you're COVID resistant, where you can still operate with your existing customers, I don't know if growing is the right way to phrase it, but you can still maintain the sales momentum you had pre-COVID. If you're yeah. COVID affected, solvency is your only goal. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, and you should frame that to your sort of stakeholders, investors, board. You know, I think a lot of companies that for the next six months, if if six months from now your business is still operating, you've retained some talent, and you're you're just running the ship, you're paying the bills, and you you're maintaining some level of revenue. You know, I, I think for a lot of businesses, that's a great accomplishment. You should sit with your board or whoever it is and say, hey. You know, this industry declined 90% and my, my revenue declined 50%. That's the goal. We did it. Celebrate it. Um, you need to celebrate those, those small wins. And you know, I'm seeing a lot of companies that I advise now doing that where a good week is, is, uh, is doing 30% of the volume they did a year ago or six months ago. And, and you know, hey, that, that's the sacrifice that you make. But ultimately, you'll be better off in the long run if you, if you right. can achieve those small wins in the meantime. And if your competitors are not thinking that way and they're down 90%, they don't make it. You came out as the survivor, even though you're down 50%. And then you could hopefully ratchet back up quicker because the competition is not chasing at your heels. All right. Yeah. Well, that takes to the end of the Typeform questions. Thank you very much, everyone, for submitting those. We'll give it a, a minute or so to see if anyone has any additional questions to plop into the Zoom chat. But uh, Robbie, I really appreciate you taking the time. This is really exciting. I think the last question I would like to ask is, you know, where do you see Uber, you know, today with new management, you know, being a public company, um, going in the next, you know, five to ten years, you know, well past. Yeah. I'm I'm still super bullish on Uber. Like full disclosure, I still hold most of the stock that I got at Uber. I I'm super bullish on it. I watched Uber go through a ton of tough growing pains. And, uh, you know, this sort of relates to incentives and growth at all costs. You know, Uber over the last two years has made some big, uh, big boy or uh, girl adult decisions. Uh, we can't do this. We're going to do that. We have to say bye to these people. Or we decided we can't win this market, so we're not going to do it, but we're going to put 100% of our focus into this. And I, I'm I'm proud of like the whole company and, and what they've done. They've made a lot of tough decisions and uh, come out the other end and maturing into a big mature company is, you know, not, not easy. Um, I'm super excited. I mean, the eats business has grown. I think on the, on the call last, uh, last week on the investor call, they said the eats business is up 50 or 60% year over year. There's going to be long-term permanent changes in, in consumer adoption of, of food delivery. I, I really believe, and I think Uber is well positioned to take hold of that. The ride-sharing business, you know, it's interesting. 
so much of what we've talked about covers this topic, but, you know, ride sharing is a pretty fast growing business still. I think it's, you know, you know, in the mature markets, 15% a year, and in the fast growing markets, probably closer to 30 or 40% per year. But the nice thing is that all of the competitive battles that Uber was in historically, you know, with Lyft, with Yandex, with Didi, those have stopped. The subsidizing has basically completely stopped. Uh, and so I think when the market does come back, you know, you may end up, and we sort of talked about this, it may not be 100% of prior volumes. It may be 90%. Next year, Uber might do 85% of its ride-sharing volumes. But it's going to be, I, I think, at least um, much more profitable because it's going to have that much more of a rational environment to be in. And then the last is there's obviously just a great leadership team there. There's a great team there. Um, there's a great track record of innovation and really bold decision-making. So I'm confident whatever developments in the industry Uber is already in, slash new industries that it wants to enter, Uber is going to continue to be really bold in the future and, and is going to capture a, a ton of value from the markets that it's in and the markets that it goes to. That's awesome. We do have a question that came in. It's regarding customer acquisition. Acquiring customers by standing on the street talk uh, to customers directly is more expensive than through performance marketing. Why do you recommend to use such an expensive tool if you can acquire customers through performance marketing and then survey them? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a fair point. So my, my point is not to say, you know, at any scale, you should go talk to customers in the street. I think my comment was more early on, if you're in the first 12 months of operations, and I could be wrong, maybe in a, in a SaaS context or a different business model, it's totally different. You know, online ads for us just never worked. The first, the first 25,000 people, the first 20,000 people that used Uber in every city, hands down, it was from word of mouth. My friend used this product in front of me. It's so incredible. I have to have it. The product spoke for itself. And we did a lot of that promotion ourselves, talking to people we know, talking to influencers, you know, getting celebrities, for example, you know, we would get to, we'd meet a celebrity through someone and we'd say, Hey, we're promoting this product. It's relevant for your demographic. Try it. If you think this is great, would you promote this? Maybe we'll come up with some side arrangement with them. The economics for us were always better doing things closer to word of mouth marketing and referral marketing, so getting existing users to be motivated to refer our product than to just running Google Ads. If you're seeing great results on the Google Ads side, ignore my advice and do it. Um, I, I do think, obviously, you know, when I for the last three or four years while I was at Uber, when Uber was much larger than when I was starting those markets at the beginning, of course we did that stuff. Um, but it was really expensive. The customers that came through paid marketing were almost always lower quality, lower engagement, higher churn. Um, if your business doesn't see that, then that's awesome. You run a great business um, and you should continue to hone it and, and leverage those channels. Gotcha. Okay, thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah,